Good evening. We were blessed last night because the Lord was with us. And we can't do without Him tonight, can we? Let's begin by reading His Word. Then we'll have a word of prayer and go right into the study. Acts chapter 16. Going to begin reading with verse 19. Not going to get much review tonight because I'm assuming that you're all with me now. Acts 16:19, the word of the Lord says, And when her masters saw that the hope of their gains was gone, they caught Paul and Silas and drew them into the marketplace under the rulers and brought them to the magistrate, saying, These men, being Jews, do exceedingly trouble our city and teach customs which are not lawful for us to receive, neither to observe being Romans. And the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates rent off their clothes and commanded to beat them. And when they had laid many stripes upon them, they cast them into prison, charging the jailer to keep them safely, who, having received such a charge, thrust them into the inner prison and made their feet fast in the stocks. And at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed, And sang praises unto God. And the prisoners heard them. May the Lord bless his word to our hearts. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we bow in your presence this evening in the name of the Lord Jesus. For we have not gathered in any other name. And we pray as those disciples did on the road to Emmaus. Lord, tarry with us. You are the vine. We are nothing but branches. All we will ever be, Lord, is branches and you know it. We need you. We need to hear your voice speaking to us. We need the ministry of your Holy Spirit, opening the word of God, taking of the things of Christ and showing them unto us. And we give you again from our hearts that liberty that is already yours by right of creation and by right of Calvary to speak to us, to touch our lives, to mold us, to direct us in any way that you see fit for your will is always good and perfect and acceptable. And for that we thank you and we commend our time into your hands now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Someone told me once of a brother they had in their church that always tried to say a kind word about everyone. And he got to be quite uh, a popular person in the church because they would bring up people that he had never heard of and people that he had heard of only in a negative light. And they would always try to catch him saying something. And he would always have something kind and positive to say about everyone. And finally, one of the young people came up to him one day and he said, Brother, could I um, ask you, what might you have to say about the devil? You said we should always have a kind word to say about everyone. And he thought, he looked off into the distance and he thought for a moment and he said, Well, I'll say this for him. He's always on the job. And that's what we see in Acts chapter 16 in the portion that we read last night. We began to see it, as one old brother said, 
in the south, when you get serious with God, the devil gets serious with you. He'll leave you alone many times until you take a step or until you even think about taking a step about getting serious about God and the things of God. And then he'll break out all of his armaments, all of his tricks, anything he can. He will bring someone into your life to distract you. He'll give you something. He'll take something from you. He'll do anything he can. But oftentimes you don't see it until you begin to make that first move to be serious about God. You take God seriously and the devil begins to take you seriously. This visit to Philippi by Paul and Silas was a visit that began, we saw, in a very calm way. It just seemed really like maybe they had made a mistake about the city that they had gone to. They knew that there was a man of Macedonia that said, come over into Macedonia and help us. But he didn't say, what city of Macedonia? And so after those first few days, they could have said, well, maybe we should have gone to another city. Maybe we're not in the right place. But then things begin to happen. We saw how Lydia came to know the Lord. And up until then, there really was no opposition. If there was any opposition in Philippi, it was the opposition of ignoring and pretending that they weren't there. Of letting them pass by without really being noticed or perceived. But when Lydia got saved, when she got baptized, and her whole house, it says in verse 15, then immediately, you saw that last night, the devil began to take them seriously. And the opposition began to come. And right away, he made sure that one of his, uh, we can't say really a henchman, we'll just say one of his slaves, got behind them and began to cry out in the streets, raising a ruckus and pointing to them, and saying that they were servants of the Most High God and that they showed the way of salvation, things that she knew nothing about. But that uh, first attack by the devil was completely neutralized, wasn't it, when Paul turned and said, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. That was the end of it. And so we could say round one went to the Lord, with Lydia, round two, went to the Lord with this poor girl who was such a contrast to the life of Lydia. Round two went to the Lord. And then we come to this portion before us tonight where it begins to look like round three is going to go to the devil. This is an important passage, this one that is before us tonight, because it illustrates to us the place of the Christian testimony in persecution, in difficulty, in suffering when you are mistreated. Not when you are suffering because you did something wrong, but when you are misjudged, when you are maligned, when you are mistreated. And nobody probably on this earth except the Lord Jesus knew more about mistreatment than the Apostle Paul. And so we look at this passage tonight, and one of the things we learn about it is that the true gospel of Jesus Christ is not popular in the world. Never was, never will be. And we will make a mistake, brethren and friends, the day we try to make the gospel popular to the world. Dear Brother Tozer, A.W. Tozer, he was a prophet in his own time, you might say, and he, he wrote an article that later was turned into a tract, and I have it. Uh, paste it into the back of my Bible, but I'm not going to take your time and, and read it to you tonight. But he talks about the old cross and the new. 
And back in his days, we're talking uh, the 40s and 50s now, when he reached the apex of his ministry. And back in his days, he said, there is a new cross crept into evangelical Christianity that does not demand the repentance and surrender of the sinner to God, but rather presents to him a God who wants to come alongside of him and be his friend and help him achieve his personal objectives. This is what he said. He said the old cross called a person a sinner. The old cross said your sin was so hopeless. Your case could not be helped except that God the Son would come down to this earth and die on the cross for you. And between you and God, between you and any relationship you might have with God stands that cross. And you must go to it. And you must trust the one who died on it for you. The new cross promises that if you believe in Jesus, he'll help you improve your tennis game. Or you'll lower your golf score. Or, or your uh, investments will go better. We might say it would be more of interest perhaps in this area of the world. The old cross and the new. Paul preached the old cross. And everywhere he went, there was either a revival or a riot, and sometimes both. And this is what we see before us here tonight. It says in verse 19, And when her masters saw that the hope of their gains was gone, they caught, or the word is really, they seized. I think the New American Standard says it that way. And that's really the best word because the idea is literally... They grabbed him. They just made, you would say, a citizen's arrest. I don't know if they'd still do that in the States. That term became popular back in the days of the Mayberry RFD and the Andy Griffith show. And they ran one, you know, about how they, Barney explained to Gomer about how you can make a citizen's arrest. And what it was, you know, quoting the chapter and the section of the law and all of that. And pretty soon Barney made a mistake and Gomer came running out and said, citizen's arrest, citizen's arrest. And arrested Barney and took him to jail. Well, it wasn't anything near as comical when these men seized Paul and Silas. These were wicked men. I want you to remember. Think with me about what we saw about them last night. These were men who cared nothing for this girl. She was exploited. She was used of them. They had ruined her life along with the evil spirit that dominated her. They had ruined her life. They were in, uh, you would say they were accomplices of Satan. Placing this girl under spiritual slavery and physical slavery so that she was so destitute of hope by the time she walked behind the apostle and his companions. She said, these men proclaim unto you the way of salvation. She excluded herself. She had no hope. Now you would think, you would think that the cruelest of men could at least stop and say, well, I don't agree with it, but I have to admit she's better off. These men were so devoid of human compassion for the love of money really is the root of all evil, all kinds of evil. And to this level, this new level of infamy had come their love of money that the only thing they could think of 
was their disgust and their fury and their desire for vengeance because they no longer could have their money. The hope of their gains, it says in verse 19, was gone. When they saw that, you see, they didn't even see the girl. Here she was. In one moment of time, the spirit is gone from her. She's free. And now she can attend to the message. She can listen to the message of the gospel. She can go and meet with these believers and learn about the Christ that came to this world, that took our sins upon Him, that died on the cross to, to free us from sin and from slavery to sin. She can listen, but they don't see her. When her master saw, and what did they see with these eyes full of avarice, full of the love of money? What did those eyes see? All they saw, they couldn't see the girl. You know how they do that sometimes in the caricatures and the cartoons they show when someone is hoping to get money. They show the dollar signs in their eyeballs. Well, this is it. Those men looked, and all they could see was that their portfolio had just suffered a severe depression. That's all they could see. The hope of their gains was gone. They couldn't see that she was delivered. They couldn't find in themselves any spark of hope, seeing what had happened to her, that they might say, maybe there's hope for us too. The only thing they could think of was money. And so what did they do immediately? And this is the, this is the trouble. When they're motivated by money, they are dead to spiritual life. They're not thinking about anything except profit and loss in terms of finances. They're not thinking about profit and loss spiritually. And you know this happens to us sometimes. Yeah, we wouldn't say that we're in the same category as these men. But I'll tell you, if all you can think about in life is financial profit and loss, you're missing the greater profit and loss statement. Because our Lord said in the Gospel of Mark, What shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul. I wonder if some of us have, have thought about that. Some of us that are here tonight. What would it profit you. If you gained everything. If you owned everything. If you owned the whole planet. If every government on this planet. If every bank on this planet. Had to come to you. For permission and direction and instruction. Because you owned it all. What would it profit you. If you had it all. And then you lost your soul. The Lord said to those men who were covetous men, those Pharisees who were covetous, he says in Luke 16, God knows your hearts that that which is highly esteemed among men is abomination in the sight of the Lord. What is highly esteemed among men? This, the Spanish say pasta. Money. You can't take it with you. It doesn't go into eternity. Won't buy the forgiveness of one single sin. But these men, all they can think of is the hope of their gains. The hope of their gains. Not their spiritual gain. Their financial gain. This is all they can think of. And so what do they do? They're caught up in a rage that is provoked by the love of money. And the only thing they can think of is the guilty parties. The guilty parties. And of course, Paul and Silas were not really the guilty party, were they? 
Paul and Silas were servants of the Most High God. That girl had been servants, had been a servant of theirs. Paul and Silas were servants of the Most High God. And so the guilty party was in heaven, you see. But since they couldn't reach him, they went for his servants. And this is what people do. This is the history of this planet. Since they can't reach God, who sends the messengers, they lay their hands on the messengers. Since they can't reach God, who changed the life, who, who gave that person who's now a Christian a testimony of a changed life, they reach the person and they go after them. And this is the way Satan works. And you have to see that, that he's behind them. Then when it says her master saw that the hope of their gain was gone, and we've been thinking about this for a few minutes together, we've been thinking about these men. But I want you to remember that behind them is another master. There is someone that they served. And it is that wicked and evil and fallen angel. The prince of the power of the air. The spirit that works in the children of disobedience. All disobedience and rebellion is provoked by him. And he's behind these men. He's their master. And he was ultimately the master of this girl. And now his form of using her to manipulate and to further enslave the people in this community, to impress them with his power and to draw them away from anything that might be truths that might give them salvation, has been frustrated. And he's angry. And just as the Lord wants to use your life and my life, as Romans 6 says, I recommended to you last night the reading of Romans 6. I don't know if any of you have had the time to do it or if you remembered. We talked about so many things. But in Romans 6, all humanity is divided into two classes. Those who are the servants of righteousness and those who are the servants of wickedness. And my friend, right where you sit tonight, you're one of the two. You either are a believer, born again, by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you are such, your life really is a service to God. You are an instrument of righteousness to serve God. And you're told to present yourself to Him. And your members, meaning the parts of your body, present yourself, your body to Him as an instrument or as instruments of righteousness. And if you're not that, if you're not that, even though you might be, in some ways, you might consider yourself by comparison a morally upright and basically good person, I hope you won't be offended but I can't help it if you are, if I tell you what the Bible says. The Bible says that if Jesus Christ is not your Lord and Savior, all you are and all that you do only serves the cause of unrighteousness. If you have not come to him, if you have not trusted him, you can only have one other master. And that's what this chapter is talking about. It's talking in this section that we read last night about a girl who was delivered from a wicked master. And now it's talking about the wicked master and, and those men who served him coming back in a counterattack. The devil is always on the job. I'll say that for him. But I'm not sure that as saying that we can say that that's for him. It would be better if he wasn't. Why is it that Christians aren't always on the job? Why is it that Christians are so easily discouraged that they can tell us no one time 
They can wrinkle their face a little. They can say a word that we don't like. They can erase us off a list. They can make some comment and people can laugh. Do you know how much damage to a young person so conscious of social standing, a pointed finger and a funny look and a little laughter from a group of people can do? It has the effect of a a small nuclear bomb sometimes. And I say the young people and the older people felt smug when I said that, but they know it's true about them too. We are so sensitive. The devil, he works in the bargain basement, you know. He never spends any more than he has to to neutralize us. He always goes for the cheapest. If he can discourage you with a word, with a look, with a comment, with a little laughter, if he can put a little pressure on you one way or other and make you uh, retreat, make you give up your testimony, discourage you, that, and that's all he has to do, he really gets off cheap, doesn't he? And everything that's thrown at him, as you see it right through the book of Acts, you would think that after chapter 2, perhaps, after the day of Pentecost, he would have retreated and announced his surrender. You have to say this for him. He's always on the job. He never seems to get discouraged. And I would like to say to you tonight that as we read through this chapter and as we come now to these men who sang and prayed in the jail, it is possible for a Christian like you and me to take the worst that life can throw at him and still have a song in his heart. And here it is right here before us. Some people take the Apostle Paul and they put him up on this great pedestal and they say, oh, but he was an apostle and I'm not. And you're right. He was an apostle and we're not. And there are no apostles today, even though we have plenty running around loose in the country who say they are. (laughs) Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen the Lord Jesus Christ? Said the apostle. There were qualifications of an apostle. They are clearly stated in the word of God. And there is no living soul on the face of this planet today that can claim them. But you see, we make this mistake. F.B. Meyer, he wrote a wonderful series of books. If you ever find one of F.B. Meyer's books on Bible characters, on Joseph, for example, any of the Bible characters that he wrote about, you take that and, and read it. And if you can't afford it, sell your shoes and buy it. They're wonderful books. He said one of the mistakes we make when we read about Bible characters is we put them in a place apart from ourselves. And we say, but they were so special. Uh, They lived in in another time, in another dispensation. They had a different gift or calling. And we put them in such an airtight and separated compartment from ourselves that there is nothing of their lives that can be of any encouragement to us. Because everything that happened to them, we say, oh, but that's the way they were. What does the Lord say, or what does the New Testament say about Elijah? A man of like passions as ours. He says, when he says that in James 5, he says, he was just like you. Don't put him way up there. Don't put him in another category that separates him so far from you that you say, well, but if I lived like the the apostle, or if I lived like the prophet, I wouldn't have these struggles. Yes, you would. As long as you have the flesh, you'll have those struggles. And that's going to be one of the wonderful things, isn't it, about getting home to heaven. 
No more struggles. No more old nature. No more temptation. Not from the outside and not from the inside. It won't be there at all. I'm looking forward to heaven for a lot of reasons, and that's not the first one. The first one has to do with someone I love and I want to see. And my grandmother's there, but it's not her. It's the Lord Jesus. You see. But I will be so glad to not have that struggle. And yet, you see, this is what the Scripture is saying to us. And coming back to the point, I haven't forgotten it. We're talking about the Apostle Paul. And we said, here he is suffering in this condition. And he's able to pray and sing hymns. And we say to ourselves, oh, yeah, but that was an Apostle. But doesn't the Apostle say... Be ye followers of me, even as I am of Christ. Doesn't he say that we should imitate him? Doesn't he set himself forth to all Christians to whom he wrote in that time, and by means of his writing to them through inspired scripture to us? Doesn't he set himself forth as an example, as an encouragement to believers? And doesn't he tell his followers, be thou an example to the believers? So let's forget about all the compartmentalization and the grading people into higher and lower levels. And let's find in the life of these men that is set before us by the Spirit of God tonight, example and stimulation and hope for us. You see, they caught them, Paul and Silas, because even though they are the servants of the Most High God, they can be caught. They can be seized. God allows the saints to be touched sometimes. I read in my Bible, and I think yours says the same thing, in Revelation chapter 13, that it was given unto them, to the beast, to make war against the saints and to overcome them. I read that in my Bible. Now, that's only for a short time. His day is very short. It's like a Roman candle. It takes off, and in a few seconds, it's gone. And that's the end of it. But it's there. God sometimes allows a saint, a believer, a person who has done nothing wrong to provoke uh, his punishment or his displeasure, he allows that person to be touched. Don't we see it in the book of Job? And God is very careful. The Spirit of God, as he lays out the story of, of the life of Job, he is very careful in the first two chapters to make it crystal clear that there was nothing in the life of Job that provoked anything of this attack at all as a punishment, as an expression of divine displeasure for any secret sin or error that might have been in his life. Those things are completely ruled out at the beginning of the book. Then why does it happen? Let's read on. They caught or they seized Paul and Silas and drew them, or literally you would say dragged them because the the verb here uh, allows that sense of being dragged. It allows that sense of being pushed and shoved into the marketplace. They're being mistreated, and they haven't even been judged yet. Now, the marketplace doesn't mean the farmer's market here. This is like a forum. It's like a plaza or a square in the center of town, and people would sell things there, and they would call it the marketplace. But this was a place also where they would judge public questions where the, the governors or the magistrates of the city would sit, where the authorities would meet, where they would have the tribunal from time to time. And so in this center place where you might say in our terminology, the town hall, 
This would be the place where they would take them. And he says, they brought them or they dragged them or pushing and shoving them, took them to the marketplace unto the rulers and brought them to the magistrates saying, here's the charges. We've seen their arrest. We've seen the anger of these men who are their masters. Now let's listen carefully to the charges. These men being Jews, oh, aren't they clever? Aren't they clever? They got that out right at the beginning, didn't they? You see how they did that? In, the, in Spanish, we would say that they are cucos. They are really clever, but in a nasty sort of way. They're Jews, they said. And, and then at the end of the next verse, they say, they talk about themselves saying, we're Romans. And they did it right away. They played to the sentiments, to the ethnic sentiments of the people. They said, now this is uh, Philippi of Macedonia. This is a Roman colony. And here we are Roman citizens. And these are Jews. It's one of the oldest stories in the world. Blame the Jews when something goes wrong. Anti-Semitism. Here it is. And that's exactly what they're doing. They are playing on a sentiment that they know existed. They knew it even back then. Oh, and before then, well, they're making a mistake. A mistake that's very old. A mistake that God warned about in Genesis 12, 3. Never forget that verse. If you don't know it, memorize it. When he said unto Abraham, And I will bless them that bless thee and curse them that curse thee. God has never forgotten that promise. And that doesn't mean that we have to agree with everything the nation of Israel does. That doesn't mean we have to give them a rubber stamp and say, by default, everything they do is fine. They can make mistakes also. But don't curse the people that God blesses. These men being Jews, they said, that was a dirty trick. Or as we say in the South, that's playing dirty pool. That's hitting below the belt. Being Jews do exceedingly trouble our city. Oh, yes, that's right. I forgot to mention to you last night and back in October what a wonderful city, what a model city the city of Philippi was until Paul and Silas and Luke and Timothy reached it. I forgot to tell you about that. You will excuse me, won't you? What a model city it was. There was no crime in Philippi. There was no prostitution in Philippi. There was no thievery, no robbing. There were no murders in Philippi. There was no graft, no political corruption. There were no broken homes. There were no disobedient children. The dogs didn't bite and they didn't fight the cats in Philippi. What a wonderful city it was until these Jews got there. You see? And so we have to find, as they would have said in another country in another time, we have to find a solution, a final solution for this problem. You see, they've come into our city and they exceedingly trouble. They are really like a grievous, a cancerous sore on our city, these men. What did they do to trouble the city? Oh, well, I'll grant you, they did trouble the city. Now, I'm going to talk on the other side of the line. They did trouble the city. You know how they troubled the city? Because they called an ace an ace and a spade a spade. 
Because they talked, as we say in uh, Spanish, they talked without anything on their tongue. That means they didn't have anything in their mouth that made them talk funny. Sin pelos en la lengua. They didn't have any hairs in their mouth or anything, feathers in their mouth, anything that made them talk. They said it plain what it was. This is sin when they spoke about sin. This is righteousness when they talked about righteousness. They preached Christ crucified. Paul said many times through the New Testament as he preached that he had come to talk to them about this Jesus. This Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Savior. He said we preach not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. And you'll see that later on when we come to the accusations laid against them in Thessalonica when they reached that city. The people misunderstood and they thought he was presenting another candidate for king of the country. They preach another king, one Jesus, they said. The apostles spoke plainly. And it troubled the city. Sinners never like to be told about sin. And many times they take it the wrong way. See, if I tell you tonight that you were born a sinner... And that in God's sight, you cannot, you are not capable of doing good or earning a place in heaven. You might be offended. You might think I was looking down my theological nose at you, but you would be wrong. That's often our first reaction. Well, see, I don't mean that at all. The Bible says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And when I tell you that that you sinned, look, I got three fingers pointing back at me. All have sinned. But listen. Knowing that all have sinned, that doesn't help you. Knowing that all have sinned didn't help me. What I needed to know, and what you need to know, dear friend, is that you have sinned. I needed to know that I had sinned. I have a friend. He's now in heaven. He told me uh, how he raised his children. He was like a father in the faith to me. He said he raised his children. He taught them to pray each night before they went to bed as they knelt down. Dear Lord, teach me that I am the sinner Jesus died for on the cross. And he said of his children, there was one in particular that didn't want to say it. The others, you know, children are all different. We've raised seven, and and no two of them are alike. (laughs) And uh, there was one of the three that just had a hard time with that. He had a problem with that. And so he would pray and he would thank the Lord for mommy and for daddy and thank the Lord for the nice day and for the food they had to eat and for their friends. And he would go right around the social agenda and pray about everything. And pretty soon his father said, I would lean over and I'd tap him on the shoulder and say, he would say his name and I'm not going to tell you his name. He would say, go on. Go on, say it. And there would be a pause and you'd hear him take a breath and he'd say, teach me that I'm the sinner of Jesus. I've the cross. Amen. spit it out as fast as possible didn't like it didn't like it later on he learned to say it from the heart can I ask you a question tonight have you ever come to the place in your life where you have seen that you not everybody you are the sinner that Jesus died for on the cross if you haven't seen that could I ask you to just begin to pray that way? Oh, Lord, pray it every day. Pray it every night before you go to bed and start tonight. Teach me 
that I am the sinner that Jesus died for on the cross. This kind of preaching is what troubled that city. Because that was a city just like every other city on the face of the earth. Full of sin, full of vice, full of corruption. Sin in the homes, sin out of the homes. Sin in the streets, sin in the city government. All kinds of corruption you can't imagine. Well, you can't imagine because you live in cities just like every other city on the face of the earth. It's there. There is no utopia in this world. There is another place, a city, where there is only righteousness. But its name is not utopia. It's heaven. And all those who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, all of those who have learned that they are the sinner that he died for on the cross, and have trusted him and said, Lord, you did that for me. You paid for my sins. I don't deserve heaven. And I couldn't get there on my own merit. I owed a debt I could not pay. You paid a debt you did not owe. It was mine. See, all of us who have said that, who have come to that place in our life, know where we're going. And it's not utopia, it's heaven. All other cities are corrupt. All other cities, no matter how they compare to one another on the relative human scale, have sinned, and the gospel troubles society because people don't like to be told that they have a cancer, that they have a spiritual leprosy, that they cannot through self-improvement and the exerting and the, and the forcing and the sacrificial effort, they cannot make themselves into that kind of person that they should be. Philosophy tells you you can. Sociology tells you you can. But I'm sorry, they're wrong. God is the creator. Philosophers haven't created anything but problems. Read the 139th Psalm and learn how God who made us knows our thoughts even before the words come to our mouth. He knows what we have thought and what we're going to say. He knows us. All our members were written in his book. He knows us. And if there is one person in all of the universe whose advice and whose analysis you can accept about yourself is God. He's the one to listen to. And through him and through the preaching of the gospel we have salvation. But this is troublesome to people who are proud of their city. This is troublesome to people who are proud of their society, proud of their personal achievements. And they rate themselves on a relative scale looking at others who haven't done as much as them. You see? And they're like a man who's standing on top of the building here. He'd go, out, go outside, climb the ladder, get on top of the building, and he would say, with all of his pride and achievement, I'm closer to the moon than you are. Granted, you are closer to the moon than I am, but you're not anywhere near getting there. And on a relative moral scale, you might have done a few more good deeds. You might have escaped a few certain sins, at least the ones that people see, never mind what goes on in your mind and your heart. But you might have escaped certain things, and you might be morally a few feet higher than another person. But the distance between you and heaven is greater than the distance between the roof of this building and the moon. There's no getting there that way. That's why God sent his son into this world to provide salvation, to offer a way to heaven for people who could not get there on their own. 
Or why then did the Lord Jesus say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Why did Peter say, there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved? That's it. And this kind of preaching troubles sinners and troubles sinners' cities. So these men exceedingly trouble our city. If we look at it that way, we'd have to say, well, in a certain sense, they were right, weren't they? And teach customs which are not lawful, verse 21, for us to receive neither to observe. We shouldn't even listen to them, much less do what they're saying. We shouldn't be, we shouldn't be even hearers of the word. James says to not be hearers only, to be hearers and doers. But what they say is, is the inverse of that here. They say we shouldn't even listen to it. We shouldn't hear it or do it. We're Romans. And I'll tell you what they saw here. And I hope you've seen this. Christianity is not a theoretical religion. It's not a religion at all. It's a relationship with the living God. And the Lord Jesus Christ, who saves us, controls our life. He is our Lord. And you see, when a person becomes a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ... The Lord Jesus said in John 10, My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they what? They follow me. They don't just read books about me. They don't just sing songs about me. They follow me. And I want to tell you my testimony in 30 seconds. For the first 24 years of my life, I read books and went to meetings and sang songs about Jesus, but I didn't follow him. And if I had died a minute before January the 5th, 1975, I would have gone to hell with a fairly decent knowledge of the Bible. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. It's one thing to be a part of the multitude like there on the Sermon on the Mount and hear the wonderful teachings of Jesus. And it's another thing to be a personal, believing, trusting follower of Him. You see? That's real Christianity. And this is what he's talking about here. And so when they say they teach customs that are not lawful for us to observe, what customs, you might say, what customs are they teaching? I thought they were just preaching Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Well, you thought wrong. Now, they did preach that. And that is the gospel message. But what I'm saying to you, but what they heard and what they are explaining here is one of their complaints is, that the application of the gospel is Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried. He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. And they went on to say, and those of you who believe in Him must follow Him. And that means, for example, we could say, we could extrapolate from this, no more going to the idol temples. No more good luck charms hanging on the doors of your house. No more going to the fortune tellers, no more playing the lotteries, no more. And they would go through all of these things. See, I know I'm stepping on toes. It's just like that old woman who went to a a country church down in the south and the preacher got up to preach and he began to say, one of the things that's wrong with the people in this church is people are smoking and they shouldn't be smoking. And she said, amen, brother. And some people that come into this church, they'd be gambling. And she said, that's right, preach it. And he went on down the list. And some people was going off to dance houses in the middle of the night and other things I ain't going to. And she said, that's right. Amen. Hallelujah. And then he said, and some people have this wicked vice that they choose snuff. 
And she looked up and she said, Lord, help him. He done quit preaching and gone to meddling. <laughs> well, you see, that's what the gospel does. The gospel does not let you theoretically believe in Jesus Christ. You might as well be delivered from that illusion right now. The gospel does not allow you to be a dry and theoretical theologian who has an orthodox, correct view of things, but whose personal life practically does not follow the teachings of Jesus Christ. What does the Great Commission say? Don't take my word for it. I know these things I'm saying are radical. But they're not any more radical than what our Lord Jesus Christ said. Matthew 28, what did he say in verses 19 and 20? Go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, teaching them, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them what? Oh, you mean he didn't just say teaching them all things whatsoever I have commanded you? He said, teaching them to observe, that means to practice, to do, to put into practice all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And I suggest to you, friends and brethren here tonight, that one of the greatest evils and sores, sicknesses on modern evangelicalism is that we have allowed the propagating of a gospel that does not demand people to follow Christ. It lets them have, like a Monopoly player, a get-out-of-jail-free card. And they stick it in their pocket, and they go off and live however they want. They got their ticket punched, and that's all that matters. Teaching them to observe. And so, you see, he, when he says this here in verse 21, what he says is really right. See, they were preaching the gospel, and the gospel is salvation by grace through faith. Do not misunderstand me and think that I am saying that a person can become a Christian or earn or merit salvation by following the teachings of Christ. You cannot. You can only be saved by placing your faith in Him alone who died on Calvary's cross paying the penalty for your sins, taking your stripes, taking your beating, taking your punishment, giving His life so that you wouldn't have to give yours. And if you do that, you do the believing, the trusting. Jesus does the saving. He's never turned a person away who came to Him that way. But I am saying... And I will not retract it now or ever that a person who is saved by grace has the grace of God operative in their life and they are a different person. They're not a perfect person, but they're a different person, you see. They're a new creature. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. You can only say that if you believe that the gospel changes people's lives. It turns us and gives us a new direction. It makes us new people. And so he says here, they teach customs which are not lawful for us, neither to, to observe, to receive, or to observe, because we're Romans. We ought to follow Roman culture. And the gospel is not adaptable to culture. Now, I'm not talking about what time you eat supper and what time you eat breakfast and all that sort of thing. In Spain, we have a very different uh, culture from here. But sin is sin right around the world. It doesn't matter if you live in a country where people think it's okay for men to run out on their wives and have a girlfriend in some other part of the city or in another town. It doesn't matter if in that culture they accept it. 
Infidelity is infidelity anywhere in the world. An ace, an ace, and a spade, a spade. You see? And so they're teaching that you can't follow the Roman culture that permits and condones and encourages sin. You can't follow these these sinful customs that they have, their idol customs, their processions, the buying and the paying of priests, and all these things. You can't do that. And they're right. They teach customs that we shouldn't observe if we're Romans. Ha. Huh. But when you're a believer, God saves you from that. He saves you from customs that are empty, that are worldly, and sometimes even satanic. He saves you out of that, and he gives you a new life, and he gives you a new family. And it's bigger than any family you ever saw before. You can get on a plane and fly for 24 hours and get off on this, this side of the world, and somebody walks up to you and throws their arms around you and says, Welcome, brother. Go in the other direction to India, and I've done it. Or to the Middle East. And somebody meets you there, and they say, Welcome, brother. To South America, welcome, brother. To Africa, welcome, brother. It's a big family. People who belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, the family of God. And those of us who are believers tonight could have no greater joy than to see you become a member of God's family. Forget about the customs of the Romans. Forget about the customs of the Americans. Forget about all these other questions of culture and tradition and customs. And think about this. Christ died on the cross for your sins. He paid the penalty, the punishment, that the law of a holy and righteous God demands for sin. For the wages of sin is death. And it can't be paid by anything but death. And that death, Jesus Christ paid on the cross at Calvary. The Romans couldn't say that. The Macedonians couldn't say that. And they didn't like for Paul and Silas to come and say it. But it needed to be said. But the multitude doesn't always say, thank you for that. That, was a, that really blessed me. The multitude doesn't say that. What do they say? The multitude rose up together, verse 22, against them. And the magistrates tore off their clothes. They couldn't even wait to take their clothes off, them to, to, to remove the tunic to unbuckle the sandals or anything. They just ripped their clothes off of them. This is the idea. In their fury and their rage and their haste to get these men exposed so that they could whip their backs. And that's exactly what they did. They tore their clothes off of them and commanded to beat them. I don't think you would call this exactly a trial by jury, would you? I, did, I didn't hear any sentence pronounced here, did you? I mean, there weren't any witnesses called except these first ones. There were no proofs given. Just that quick. And when they had laid, verse 23, many stripes upon them. Paul says in, in 2 Corinthians 11, that five times he received of the Jews 40 stripes. You know how the Jews did it? They wanted to be merciful, and the law would only allow them to give 40 stripes. And so oftentimes, they, the writings tell us, they would give 39. And then they would stop. And that was being merciful. And so then the person who took the whipping would have to say, thank you for being kind. Because you could have given me 40. Oh, but the pagans didn't have any of those rules. The pagans beat them until they got tired of beating them. 
They didn't beat them to satisfy a penalty of the law. They beat them to satisfy the carnal, fleshly anger, the savage. And that's what it is, you see. Selfish and corrupt men are as dangerous as wild animals on the loose. And they tear into them and they beat them, it says, when they had laid many stripes upon them. They cast them into prison, charging the jailer to keep them safe. Now, why would they say that to the jailer? They're saying to the jailer, in effect, these are dangerous men. Be careful. These are dangerous men. You make sure you keep them safe as if they could escape after such a beating. Now, the jailer, he was so impressed with this charge, it says in verse 24, who, having received such a charge, it means he was so impressed by the way they told him that he better take care of these men safely. He didn't just put them in jail. Well, they would have been safe in the outer prison in the condition that they were in. They weren't going to try to escape anyway. Having received such a charge, he thrust them into the inner prison. That means into the dungeon. And not only that, and the dungeon is that place that's dark when the noonday sun is glaring outside. It's damp. The rats are there. Many times when they were in the dungeon, they couldn't knock on the door and say, could I go out and go to the bathroom? Because the dungeon was also your bathroom. They thrust them into the inner prison. And not only that, made their feet fast in the stocks. Jeremiah was put in the stocks in the Old Testament. They're going to have fellowship with him. Feet in the stocks in the inner prison, in the dungeon, door shut, locked, out to the outer prison, out of that, door shut and locked, and the jailer goes to his house. They won't get out now. I don't know what they've done, but they sure must be dangerous men for them to tell me that. So here they are. And what do you think? Put yourself in their place. I don't think there's a person here in this room tonight that has suffered what Paul and Silas suffered that day. And that is not meant to say that some of us haven't suffered or aren't suffering even now. Why does God allow Christians to suffer? Peter says in 1 Peter 4, If any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but rather glorify God on his behalf. This behalf. And in, and in the book of Acts earlier in chapter 5, when they were beaten and warned not to speak anymore in the name of Jesus, it says they went and rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer for the sake of that name. They didn't call a lawyer, they didn't organize a demonstration in front of the consulate or in front of the city government. You know why people do all those kind of things today? <laughs> because of the distance between them and God and their relationship with Him. Because of the low spiritual temperature at which they live. Love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who despitefully use you. teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I had commanded you. Paul had learned that. Silas had learned that. 
And at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises, or you might say sang psalms unto God. Psalm 50, verse 17 says, Call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will hear you and deliver you. Psalm 142, verse 7, the prayer of the psalmist is, Bring my soul out of prison, that I might praise thy name. Did you know that the psalms have some of the very best language in the world for prayer? They seem to me to cover every possible situation and emotion that a person can find himself in in this life. When you can't think of what to say and how to say it, You have two recourses. One, the Holy Spirit makes intercession for us with groanings that cannot be uttered. It means he knows how to intercede for us when we don't know how to say to God what we feel needs to be said. We can't find the words. We are in such grief. We are so confused. We are so stricken by what is happening. We don't know what to say. You have the Holy Spirit if you're a believer. If you're not, I feel sorry for you. You don't have anyone who can make that intercession for you in those difficult times of life. But oh, what a comfort for the believer. And the other thing is, these psalms, we go to them and we read them and we say, there it is, Lord. That's the word. Those are the phrases and the words that I needed. That is what I want to say to you. And I'm not saying it like repeating our memorized prayer. I'm saying those words express my heart to you now, O Lord. So you read the psalms and you'll find in them an education in the school of prayer. Bring my soul out of prison that I might praise thy name. We're not going to get out of prison tonight. We'll let him stay there. I'm going to end with this. You've been very patient. I don't know if you're ever going to invite me back because I'm disobeying the clock regularly now. Look at the end of verse 25. Look how it ends. I want us to take this with us tonight and to think about this. It says, and the prisoners heard them. Now listen. Listen carefully. Lydia heard them by the river. The girl possessed with the Spirit heard them in the streets. The magistrates and the crowd heard them in the plaza and the prisoners heard them in the jail anybody can sing when the sun is shining and the birds are singing and everything is going right anybody can sing when they have what they call sometimes the warm fuzzies the field goodies but only a Christian can sing praises to God when it looks like everything is going against him Because the Christian knows that even though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, he's with you. What did the Lord say? I will never leave you nor forsake you. He said that, didn't he? Jesus knows all about my struggles. He will guide till the day is done. There's no friend like the lowly Jesus. No, not one. They were way down in the inner prison. 
in the dungeon. Their feet were in the stocks. But there's somebody who went even lower than that. He left heaven. He came down to this earth. He humbled himself. He took upon himself the form of a servant. He was obedient unto death and the death of the cross. He went lower than any person has ever gone. First Peter says he bore our sins in his own body on the tree. Men rejected him. Heaven turned its back on him. And he cried out as an orphan from the cross of Calvary. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Listen. You're the answer to that question. He did it for you. He did it for you. There's no friend like the lowly Jesus. He went so low. He suffered and paid for crimes and sins that he had never committed. So that you might be in heaven one day. He wants your face there so bad. He wants to see you. He gave his life for you. And all you have to do. Repent of your sin and trust in him tonight and say, Lord, you did that for me. You went low for me. I want to be yours for all eternity. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give thanks for the opportunity that we have to look into the word of God. We give thanks for the testimony of these men who were able to sing and pray in such an awful physical condition, their bodies and the place that they were left in. Oh Lord, we know that Christianity is real. When we see what comes out of these men under pressure, when we think what so often comes out of human beings around us and even ourselves under pressure, when we are squeezed, what's in us comes out. And look what came out of them prayer and praises to God and we thank you for that testimony and we thank you for the reality of a life that has been changed by the person of Jesus Christ we thank you for the power of the gospel for the impact of the gospel and we pray for those people here among us tonight and friends of ours and other places people who are dear to our hearts who have not yet known the impact of the gospel in their lives that it might be tonight oh Lord we think about ourselves and we pray for ourselves. We know how important it is to you what kind of testimony we give when we are suffering, what we say and how we react. And the prisoners heard them. And we know that those around us hear us. And we pray for your grace and your strength that in our trials and difficulties and in our sufferings, our reaction might show that we are not like those who don't know the Savior. And so we might testify, even through our tears, of the Lord Jesus Christ. Dismiss us now with your blessing, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.